All right. As we have been looking at chapter 5, beginning on 91, we've been looking at this concept of righteousness. We've slowed all the way down as, as much as um, we can to define our terms. We've looked at justification as a term. We've looked at um, imputation as a term. We um, are also, if if it's already in our minds, we're dusting it off. We're getting it extra clean. If it's If it's not in our mind, we're building it, solidifying it there. And that's this very helpful theological distinction between justification and sanctification. Okay? Sometimes, sometimes theologians use words to describe things, and those words don't happen to be found in the Bible. Or if you go back into the Bible and you look, it's different than how the Bible uses it. And that can give you a sense sometimes, this false rug pull. You know, someone pulls the rug out from under your feet, and there's all kinds of internet theologians, YouTube theologians, who are very good at giving these rug pulls. You know, did you know that the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible? Dun, dun, dun. Now let me contradict the entire doctrine of the Trinity here while ostensibly teaching you what the Bible really says. Yeah, right. Okay, so over time, theologians, the church, church fathers, we, we have used language in order to drive home a particular point that is taught in the scriptures. For example, the word Trinity is used in this respect. Okay, um, And this idea then that God is one in three persons, that unity and Trinity, Trinity and unity, tri-unity, Trinity, it just works. And so people start talking this way, even though it's not a biblical term. Well, there are many such expressions in theology, and then also many such distinctions or categories in theology that you don't really find in the scriptures, even though the concepts themselves are taught in the scriptures, you see. So we invent a word that's kind of a handle on a very complex biblical topic. Does that make sense? So like another one might be the word sacrament. What on earth does that mean? Um, in Greek, it would be mysterion, but then in Latin, it comes sacramentum, and then to us, a sacrament. It's these terms that are loaded with theological content. And what would be an example of maybe a, a kind of category that you don't find taught in precisely that language in the scriptures? Well, the category between God's transcendence and God's imminence. You know, where God is transcendent, he is utterly incomprehensible to us. He is outside of time and space. He operates in a way that is um, that his his thoughts are so much higher than ours, it says the heavens are higher than the earth. You know, it's kind of like an ant trying to comprehend us. It's even more stark because God is infinite. And so we are even less than ants trying to comprehend him. This is all transcendence. And the scriptures speak this way in many different verses, even if they don't use that language of transcendence. What's the opposite category of that, God's imminence, where he reveals himself in time and space to us in a way that is perfectly comprehensible, and in a way that we can understand by way of language, by way of the word. And here you kind of get a little play, the small w word, the scriptures, and the large w word, the word that became flesh. Okay, um, But this is God's imminence. It's why when his disciples say, um, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, pray in this way. Oh, all-knowing, all-powerful God, you already know what I'm going to pray for, and you're not going to change your mind anyway, so amen. No, that's not how Jesus teaches us. That would be how to kind of maybe pray to the transcendent aspect of God. But but Jesus has us pray to the imminent aspect of God. When you pray, pray in this way. Our Father. God wants to relate to us imminently as, as our Father, as someone we can grasp and understand, who appears to be quite capable of listening and hearing us and changing. All right, so these categories, transcendent and imminent, they really help us understand and organize biblical teaching, even though you wouldn't go find those two concepts right next to each other defined as such in the scriptures. Make sense so far? All right. So the, the key distinction then from this chapter is the idea of justification and sanctification. Now, these are two parts of one whole. And that means you don't really have one without the other. All right. Now, what is being described here in justification and sanctification? All right, well, justification, as we've observed, is 
the question of how am I righteous when I stand before God? And the answer of Scripture is by grace, through faith, apart from works, on account of Christ Jesus. When we're contemplating how it is that we stand before God in the moment of death, we stand before God in the final judgment, it is the righteousness of Christ, His works. No righteousness in me, lest I could boast. No good works of mine, just Him and His righteousness. That's justification. That's taught everywhere in the Scriptures. Jesus teaches it. Paul teaches it. It's thorough going. And of course, Paul is expressly drawing on the Old Testament Scriptures. The story of Abraham, for example, and the story of David would be another example. All right. If you go looking in the Scriptures for the language of sanctification, you can hear the, the language of sanctus. That's the Latin for holy. And so sanctification is, is to make one holy. Now, if you just go looking in the scriptures for the language of sanctification, what you're going to find is that sanctification talk biblically is very often identical to justification talk. How is it that we stand before God in the hour of death or stand before him at the judgment seat? God sanctifies us. God makes us holy. Okay? Now, why am I saying this? Because I don't want the rug to be pulled out from under you when someone says, well, you've got this distinction between justification and sanctification, but ha-ha, if you look at the Bible, the Bible talks about sanctification as if it were justification. So this whole theory is wrong. You've been misled. Now let me show you the true way, which in fact is the false way. See how this works? Okay. So we're working within the paradigm of theological distinctions, these terms and categories that have been invented to help us articulate and understand the fullness of biblical teaching. So justification, our standing before God and being justified in his sight, being righteous in his sight by grace through faith, on account of Christ Jesus and thus excluding all of our own good works. What's the flip side of that then? What's the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin is that God, in converting us, in giving us his Holy Spirit, in giving us the gift of faith, in making us a new creation, he has created new impulses within our hearts, new attitudes and desires, and those blossom forth in good works. You can think of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that section from Scripture? It's, it's not the fruit of me. <laughs> it's the fruit of the Spirit that he works in and through me. All right? And of course, Jesus speaks of this too. Remember in his discourse, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Yeah. The ba branches that don't bear good fruit will be cut off. But if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. What's Jesus doing in this, in this um, parable, this way of speaking? In beautiful, simple, picturesque language, he's really teaching what we mean in distinguishing between justification and sanctification. Okay, How so? Well, unless the, the branch abides in the vine, it has no life in it. That's justification, to abide in Christ. And if we abide in Christ, if the branch abides in the vine, then the branch will bear much fruit. That's sanctification. Now you can see how these are two parts of the whole. The branch that abides in the vine will bear fruit. That which is justified will also be sanctified, will also produce good works, you see, will be alive. Okay. But we can also make a distinction here and see that they're not identical. One is the connection between the branch to the vine, that's justification, and the other is the connection with the branch to the fruit, and that's sanctification. So we use these terms justification and sanctification out of necessity. We stand before God on the basis of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, none of our works. And yet now we're going to transition and talk about sanctification. And yet the Holy Spirit has transformed us and made us new so that we are abundant in good works and fruitful in good works. Make sense? So we hold these things two together. It is, this really is probably the most important theological distinction to come out of the Reformation. Okay? And that's true whether you're Lutheran or not. That is probably the most important. When these two things are confused, okay, when you take these separate or distinct categories of justification and sanctification, you try to meld them together, guess what happens? 
then our standing before God is no longer by grace through faith on account of Christ apart from our works. What's happened? Our works, our good works, have been introduced into the equation. Now our righteousness before God in death or in the hour of judgment is at least partially based on my good works. Does that make sense? Okay, now what's the problem with that? Well, in the first place, the scriptures exclude it everywhere because it's not our glory, but Christ's. Um, so we're not going to denude Christ of his glory. On the second, on the second hand, though, it does give me cause to boast. If my good works are part of the ingredient that gets me into heaven, then I could look at, you know, Jones over there who's going to hell and say, well, sorry. God, thank you that I'm not like this other man. Ooh, didn't Jesus tell that exact parable of the Pharisee standing before the temple who said, thank you that I'm righteous, that I'm not like this other guy. And of course, that other guy, what was his prayer? Lord, have mercy upon me. In fact, there's actual technical language there hidden underneath the English. Lord, make atonement for me. Jesus says that that man is the one who went home righteous, justified, not the Pharisee. So as we stand before the judgment seat of God, we don't plead our works whatsoever. That's of the utmost importance. Um, and, and not just in terms of getting theology right, but in terms of, of the heart of what Christianity is. Christ saves us. We don't save ourselves. Right? And then we're going to be fruitful in good works via sanctification. At the time of the Reformation is we're articulating this biblical doctrine. And of course, the Roman Catholics are saying, no, 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 you've got to have faith and works together. That's what equals salvation. And of course, that denudes Christ of his glory. That gives me cause to boast. That's contrary to the scriptures. There's all kinds of problems with that. Okay, but then maybe on an existential level, on a personal level, here's what that kind of theology causes. How can I ever know that I'm saved? How can I ever know that I've done enough? I can't. And thus, in this kind of theology, the height of piety is believing that you don't know if you're saved. You see, so I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to purgatory. I hope I get in. And then into this, what's the gospel transformed as? Well, facare quad in est. Or our English equivalent, do your best and let God do the rest. Sounds nice at first, but when you really think about this as gospel, as good news, is it? Well, have I ever done my best? How can I be sure that I've done my best? Is it an object? You know, this is a good argument. One of my, one of my fellow pastors makes this argument, um, or something similar to it. Is it objectively better to pray for my neighbor or to spend the afternoon golfing? Well, to pray for your neighbor. Ah, so that would be doing your best. Have you ever been golfing? <laughs> Why, yes, yes, I have. Ah, oh, then there was a time in which you were not doing your best, right? You see, so this false gospel, um, this the, uh, of you can't be certain, but do your best and God will do the rest, um, really erodes when you ask yourself if you've ever done that. And suddenly, suddenly Christianity, the heart of Christianity has been transformed into Boy, gee, I sure hope God's going to be merciful to me. Please try to find that sentiment anywhere in the scriptures, anywhere in the apostolic teaching. The certainty of salvation in Christ is based on the word of God that does not lie and the promise that he has made on account of Christ's death and resurrection by which all our sins are forgiven and covered. And we stand righteous in his sight apart from our works. But that's how important this is. Well, in swings the Roman Catholics with uh, of the 16th century on the Tarzan rope saying, Aha! I knew it! You Lutherans teach nothing about good works. You're against good works. This is all just a guise so that we can go on sinning all the more. To which the Lutherans say, No! No, if we're going to talk about works, though, we're no longer talking about justification. We're now talking about sanctification. We're no longer talking about what avails before the throne of God. We're talking about what God gives to us and gifts to us through the Holy Spirit. Thus, they're called fruits of the Spirit, you see. So this distinction is of the utmost importance. We do teach good works all the time. We just don't teach that good works save you. 
Our salvation is as certain as God became man in Christ Jesus in the manger. Our salvation is as certain as that man in his real flesh was crucified to the cross and with his real blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And because God has done these things, God declares us forgiven and God cannot lie. And so my faith, I can be absolutely certain that I'm going to heaven, not because of anything inside of me. If I look inside of me, I'll see nothing but doubt and questions and who knows if there's enough and who knows if I'll believe in 10 years from now and, you know, on and on. Just nothing but doubt if I look at me. But if I look at Christ, everything is certain. He does not lie. He has done it. It's certain. And so that's the, that then is the cult of the Christian faith is to be in this respect, looking outside of ourselves to Christ, to the Word of God, to the sacraments of God, which are the, the promises of God given to us, so that we may be certain, so that all questions of doubt, which are really put in us by the devil, did God really say, you know, all these questions of doubt can be combated with the words and promises of God. All right, so all that, that lengthy kind of discussion to hopefully show you how important it is to retain these categories of justification and sanctification. They're distinct from one another. They're part of the same whole, the gift that God gives to us in Christ Jesus. So far, so good? Any uh, any questions or anything that I might have confused you on in, in that regard? Okay, like I said, hopefully most of this is kind of dusting off what's already there, but if not, that's fine too. Um, we want to we wanna make sure and have that foundation established. All right, so that's been a lot of what we've been up to, um, to, to this point in Wolfmuller's text. Now, a, a kind of second point he's made is, of course, that salvation is won for us on the cross and delivered to us in the Word. And that's where we've been so far. Um, to pick up on page 95, we're looking at this... Um, this idea of the death of Christ being preached and kind of the words, words contained in that language for you. That is the, the word delivers what Christ did on the cross 2000 years ago to each one of us requiring our hearts to believe. So you can glance at 94, just the very odd and large print there. At least two different sizes of fonts as best as my eye can detect. The death of Christ must be preached. Forgiveness must be preached. The gospel is not the fact of the cross or the event of the cross. It is the word of the cross, the promise of the cross. Okay, what is Wolfmuller after here? Well, even the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> but do the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross for them? No. So we must believe not only that Jesus died on the cross, but that Jesus died on the cross for us, or to make it personal for me, and thus we want to preach this as um, Jesus died on the cross, not period, but Jesus died on the cross for us or for you. You see? So the word is the delivery system. This is why in Romans, Paul says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And elsewhere, I think it's in one of the Corinthians, <clears throat> he likens he likens this um, by analogy to God in Genesis. Remember how there was nothing but darkness and God says, let there be light and there is light. That's how God, he sees us covered in spiritual darkness from birth by nature, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, dark. And he speaks the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus into that darkness. And there's the light of faith within us. So that's St. Paul's argument for how this works and how important the word is in creating faith within us. You know, light can't make itself appear out of darkness. Only God can do that. Faith can't make itself appear in the midst of fallen sinful people. Only God can do that. And so we can be certain then that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's another, yet another way in which we can stand before the judgment seat of God and say, I can't boast. You know, if it's my faith as if my faith were a virtue, if it's my faith as if I was making a decision, then I could boast because I could say again, well, there's Jones over there. He's going to hell because he didn't make a decision for Jesus, but I did, you see. So even our faith gets credited to God. That's all glory to God, right? That's that little phrase um, and why it's so important. 
Okay, so let's talk more about this word, and that's over on page ninety-five.、Um, this word is a promise of God. That's the great big font on ninety-five. It's a promise of God. How so? Well, it's a funny way for us to think, and I, I mean, a really, really rather a strange or kind of alien way for us to think. And that is because it's it, it starts at counter purposes. You go like this. You go, what proof do I have that my sins are forgiven? <laughs> What proof do I have that death has been conquered? And of course, the answer to both of these is there isn't any proof as such. There's nothing by sight, rather only by the word that comes and says that death on the cross was for you, and it is a removal of your sins. And though you die, yet shall you live. So, do you see how all of these gospel words and promises are just that promise? We have not yet seen their fulfillment. It is by faith right now, not by sight. Make sense? Okay. So we've got the word delivering what God gives to us on the cross, and then we've got that the essence of that word being a promise, a declaration, contrary frequently to what we see or experience, and thus again a matter of faith. Faith grasps grasps hold of the promise. Okay. That probably、um, that probably summarizes. Um, yeah, that probably summarizes the main points Wolf Mueller is after. Let's look at the top of ninety-six, and we'll do just a、uh, a quick paragraph from Wolf Mueller here, where he's going to quote a bunch of scriptures, kind of undergirding his point. All right. Now we are a little midstream in his thought, but I think we'll do okay. This is why justification is. "Quote unquote by faith, and not by works. Forgiveness is a promise, for the inheritance comes by the law." And this is quoting Galatians three eighteen. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. What's going on there in this teaching of Scripture? What's the inheritance referring to? Yeah, eternal life, heaven and bliss with God. If we can achieve that by the law, then it no longer comes by promise. How so? Well, God doesn't have to promise me what I myself can do. God doesn't have to say, "Jeremy, you're going to have eternal life if you only pick up that cup." I'll just be it. Okay, right? It's done. So the law, if the law is our action and our activity, and in a secondary sense, I mean to kind of flip the logic here, God can't promise something that that we could destroy. In this sense, God can't say,、um, "Hey, if you,、uh, I will give you eternal life,、um, but you can certainly lose it if you don't keep the law." Right? Then the argument here is like. Well, then, in what sense is that a promise? It's completely conditioned upon my behavior. It's not really a promise. It's just a statement of of what the effect will be of the cause of me keeping the law and saving myself.、So、there's no promise to be believed.、Um, Wolf Mueller does a great job. Let me see if I. Oh, gosh, I should have included this. I'm sorry. This was clumsy of me. Jump back on 95, and you'll get this great illustration from Wolf Mueller. It's Um, it really drives home the point. I apologize for backtracking it for a second. So, under the big language, it is a promise. The big font there.、Um, God's word, remember, can be divided into commands and promises. A command is kept by doing it. A promise is kept by believing it. If you keep a command, stand up and do ten jumping jacks. It would make no sense for you to say, Brian, I believe you. <laughs> I didn't give you a promise to believe, but a commandment to do. If I give you a promise, Jesus is coming back. It makes no sense for you to stand up and do ten jumping jacks. I didn't give you a command to do, but a promise to believe. Okay, so what he's doing in a humorous way is talking about the difference between a command and a promise, and the and the law is a command. So if we go back to Galatians three eighteen on the top of ninety six. If the inheritance comes by the law, by doing by doing this thing that God commands, then it no longer comes by a promise. What's the reverse of the logic there? If it comes by a promise, then it no longer comes by what you do. You see how Paul's working here? How his thought process is going? 
So for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thus it can't come by the law. You see his point? So if it comes by a promise, it has to be received by faith. It's not a matter of things we do. Okay? This is just one of Paul's many, many arguments um, where you can see that this is completely a biblical, apostolic, the apostles teach this in their written word. It's an apostolic truth. And so if we're going to be of that one church founded by Christ upon his apostles, then we're going to believe this too. All right, continuing about three lines down from the top of 96. If God had offered salvation through a command, then we would be saved by keeping the command. We would be saved through works. But salvation is given to us through a promise. Now quoting Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith. So what's the commandment there? There is no commandment. It's a promise that God's making to you to be received in faith. The only way of return, like, you know, like not benefiting from this promise is to reject it and refuse it, you know. Um, there, no analogy to this is perfect, but it's as if we were, we were spiritual beggars and, you know, God put food directly into our mouth. <laughs> and he said, receive this, we spit it out. You know, did he give it? Yes. Is it true? Yes. Is it all we need? Yes. But we, rejected it. Yeah. So, is God in any way to blame for that? No. It's us who are to blame. So, that in, in that respect, too, God's promise can be rejected, but otherwise it's simply received in faith. And whether we receive it in faith or reject it, it still is what it is. It still is bread and the mouth. It still is forgiveness of sins. It still is life to the dying. It's just we either receive that gift in faith and take it, or we, um, or we spit it out in rejection and unbelief. So that's the dynamic here. That's the dynamic. But this is a promise. By grace you've been saved through faith. Okay. Yes, please. Uh, in that context, then, uh, in the Old Testament times, the, the uh, Ten Commandments were given, and wasn't, aren't, are we to read the Old Testament with the idea that those were different conditions that the people were promised eternal life uh, through the obedience to the commandments? Or mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Um, so we have to remember, and this would be Paul's way of answering this, before Moses was Abraham. Okay? And now in many respects, the way that the Hebrews understood the Sinaitic covenant that comes, you know, on Mount Sinai with the thunder and lightning and Moses and the blood of bulls being splashed on the people and the people begging not to hear the voice of God and this, remember this? And then the Ten Commandments are given on the stone tablets. So, the giving of the law. Um, this, this is, uh, at, at root of this is circumcision, which was given before, but the Hebrew way of thinking sees circumcision as the root of all of this because it was sort of the first work that God required right? and kind of the essence. I mean, much like how we see baptism as the beginning of what Christianity is, circumcision is the beginning of what Old Testament Christianity is, faith in the Messiah. This is given to Abraham, but here's Paul's argument in Romans. Is it given to Abraham before God declares him justified by faith or after? And the answer is after. If you go back to Genesis and look, it's after. So in other words, what's Paul's argument? That Abraham was justified in God's sight before he was circumcised. Before he had even begun to keep any law of God. And so then the argument goes that that promise made to Abraham and to his offspring is in effect. This promise of the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus to be justified in God's sight is already in full effect by the time circumcision comes along and then by the time the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament, the law comes along. Paul answers, well, why then did God add the law? And it's kind of interesting. I mean, in, in this way of thinking, Paul's answer is 
He adds the law so that sin becomes exceedingly sinful. It's like a pedagogue driving us. I'm like a taskmaster, taskmaster with a with a little student driving that student to do the right thing. And Paul says, "What is the right thing that the law is driving us to do? To receive the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus." How so? Well, the more you try to keep the law, the more you're going to realize you can't. Okay, that's the that's like. This is where we talk about the different uses of the law. And, and here's the second use that what the most important theological thing that the law does for me is shows me who I truly am and how desperately I need a savior. Okay. Now the law is certainly the will of God for me. And since God is my father through the waters of holy baptism, he saved me in his son Christ Jesus. I love him very much and I want to be like him and I want to do what he would have me do. And so every morning I go out about my day and my callings and vocation and I want to do everything that is pleasing in God's sight. What inevitably happens by the end of breakfast? <laughs> Who knows how many, how many commandments I violated if not only in my heart. In my thoughts, in my words, sometimes in my deeds, very frequently, not only in the things I've done, but in the things I've failed to do. And so, yes, the law has this use and purpose, that it's a guide to living a God-pleasing life, and it's what we as his children want to do. But then it never, it never ceases to have this theological purpose of revealing to me my sins and doing so more and more deeply. Now, C.S. Lewis has this great quote, that um, a man who thinks that he is good has never really tried to be good. <laughs> what a great quote. It's only in trying very hard to be good do you realize how bad you actually are and how much you need Jesus. Okay, so this is the gift of the law. This is why then the law. Um, when God lays down the law, yeah, he wants his people to live by it, but he also wants them to learn that insofar as they can't, they must rely on his promise of a Savior, a Messiah. And you remember, too, in the Old Testament, that promise of the Savior, the Messiah, stretches all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God promised Adam and Eve. And then that, that same promise is being preached by Adam and Eve and their progeny all the way through Noah and up into the time of the flood. And after Noah, again, it's Noah and seven others, and he's preaching that this this seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. This is the gospel, the entire Prior to the flood, the entire Christian faith is there. We're waiting for the Messiah, the one who's going to crush the serpent's head and undo sin and death. They're all Christian. From Adam to Noah, they're all Christian. And then when Noah becomes a new Adam with the seven others, what, what's the faith that's the only faith that exists on planet Earth? Christianity. We're all waiting for the Messiah to come. Unbelief happens again. <laughs> um, but the gospel goes forth even unto Abraham, and then the promise is made to Abraham that it's going to be your offspring, one in your family who will be the Christ. That promise goes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, Moses even promises that this one is coming. God will send one like me, a servant like me, a prophet like me, and yet one who is infinitely greater than me. Moses is talking about Christ. With this, with the Old Testament covenant, let's not forget that God doesn't just drop the Ten Commandments down on the stones and that's that. But He also institutes the temple, the priesthood, and the entire sacrificial system. For what purpose? He knew right off the bat that His people would fail to keep the commandments and would need a sacrament, a way of seeing that their sins would be covered by the blood of an innocent. So the sacrificial system is the blood of innocent animals, but that's only foretelling that blood which will cleanse them and all of us from our sins forever. And that's the blood of Jesus. Once the blood of Jesus is shed, all the, the, all the teaching of the shedding of the blood of animals is put aside because we now have the thing in itself. And again, I'm not inventing this theology. This is really the whole thesis of the book of Hebrews, right? Um, so we have this, we have this set for us. Okay. So this is where our language is actually kind of confusing. Um, because you actually, you have a New Testament, you have an Old Testament, and you kind of have an older testament, which is actually the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do I mean? What do I mean? That the first testament is the promise of God that he'll send the Savior. 
then the covenant of the law comes. Okay. And then as Christ the Savior comes, he institutes a New Testament, you see. But that New Testament is his coming in the forgiveness of sins. What is the, if you will, the baseline from, um, let me try to do this the right way for you, but the baseline from Genesis to Revelation is the death of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. The law is only added in at a certain point to amplify for us our need for him, you see. So the dominant covenant, as it were, is the covenant in Christ Jesus. Now, why do we, why is it valid then to speak of the old covenant being the cyanatic covenant and the new covenant being the cup of Jesus? Well, because that's exactly the language he uses and that's where those two covenants are set in contrast. Um, remember the covenant of, uh, of, uh, the Mosaic covenant of Moses. He's splashing the blood of bulls on the people and saying this is the covenant with God. Um, now, what does Jesus do? When he, on the night when he's betrayed, he, he takes, he first takes the bread and said, this is my body given for you. But apropos of our point, he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new testament, the new covenant in my blood. So we're, we're done with that covenant that began with the sprinkling of the bull's blood on the people. And now it's the sprinkling of my blood on the people. And so when we receive his cup, we are receiving the new covenant, the New Testament, the heart and essence of, of what this New Testament, this new covenant era is, which is the final until um, Christ returns and we are all brought together with him. Yeah, so that's a very long way of saying Adam and Eve were Christian and everybody ever since them have been Christian and Christianity is far and away the oldest religion in the history of the world. And salvation is by, has never been by any other name other than the name of the Messiah, which we now know is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is Christ. It's where the shortest confession we can make is simply Jesus Christ. This Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, that everyone has been waiting for, from Adam and Eve to the very present. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, thank you for that question. I hope that that answer was helpful to kind of wrap our minds around the big picture of how all of this works. The Old Testament people were justified by grace through faith on account of Christ who had not yet come, right? And completely apart from works. And that's, that's really when Paul goes to make his argument, he's going to draw on Genesis and say, look, it's always been this way. That's really the, the first, I don't know, off the top of my head, at least the first five chapters of Romans are basically set up to say this doctrine that we are now preaching as apostles of Christ is the same doctrine you find in Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament. So you can see how Paul, as a Jewish Christian, is saying the Jews have always believed in Christ. And if you're a Jew that doesn't believe in Christ or doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ, you've lost the plot. You've, you've derivated from your own scriptures and from the lineage of uh, Adam and Eve, the lineage of Abraham, the lineage of Moses, etc. Okay. Yes, please. Uh, there's a hand up here. Are we, hold, hold on one second. I think we're running a microphone for the sake of those watching Where online. Um, up front, Paul. I hope I didn't miss your saying this, but can we say the promise of Eden? From the very beginning. And yes. Okay. Absolutely. And then yeah. comes Abraham's. And yeah, that's where we say that the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, that is really, I mean, you can also spend a lot of time thinking about different covenants and just defining them differently according to the scriptures, because there's kinds of different covenants and rehashing of covenants. and um, But at base, the very first promise that God makes is the promise of Christ Jesus. It's a unilateral covenant. He's going to do this, period. How do we know it's unilateral? Well, he doesn't even say it to Adam and Eve. He says it to Satan in the presence of Adam and Eve. The seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So we know that that's a covenant God makes with us, but it's so unilateral that he actually speaks it directly to the serpent in our earshot. So what condition do we have to fulfill in order for God to do this? 
There is no condition. He's going to do it. The only thing left is for Adam and Eve to believe this. For Abraham to believe this. For Moses to believe this. For all the Old Testament saints to believe this. For us to believe it as well. That's when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist calls him the Messiah, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. All the Hebrew people, of all the Jewish people at the time, they're not going, well, what's a Messiah? We've been saved by the law this whole time. No, they all know, they're all waiting for the Messiah, the Savior. You see, it's all an entirely Christian faith. They're waiting for the Messiah. And the claim is of John the Baptist is this Jesus is the Messiah. And his own self-claim is that he is the Messiah. And then, um, of course, he's rejected as the Messiah, which ironically makes him, in fact, the true Messiah, because that's the fulfilling of the scriptures. Came into his own, and his own received him not. Yeah, one more. If it's if it's short, I can just restate the question. If it's long, you better get it on the on the microphone. Okay, I'm absolutely amazed when is it Martha who says, "Yes, I believe in the resurrection." Exactly. Where does she get that from? Exactly. Yeah, that's the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, again, all of our popular media today just has zero understanding of Christianity, zero understanding of the Hebrew faith, and they just outright lie all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, read, watched, quote unquote, experts on on TV, remember when that used to exist, um, or on YouTube or whatever the social media uh, site is. And and they all say things like, um, the Old Testament people weren't looking for Christ, weren't looking for a Messiah. The Old Testament people knew nothing of the resurrection, and so on. These kinds of claims rendered utterly false by the people who we, we see in the scriptures themselves, um, acknowledging that they are waiting for a Christ and wondering if Jesus is the Christ or not, fully believing in a resurrection at the end of time, not necessarily connecting the dots that Jesus himself is the resurrection embodied and how that's going to work, that he's going to be crucified and risen and with him then all who believe in him raised. So thank you for that. Great point. Yes, please. Um, I think we're, you're, being too general in this is what the Jews believed or believe. Just like Christians, there are, there were Jews that did and yeah, didn't. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, for, for example, the Pharisees, they seem to be the law works kind of people of their day. Mm-hmm. You don't see them in the Old Testament and you don't see them around today. They just rose and fell, I guess. Um, because like I said, they seem to just believe in works. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a opportunity to make a distinction. So when we're talking about the Hebrew faith proper, I'm not talking about all the m- mistakes that people make or the way that they perverted or polluted that or lost the plot altogether. When we're talking about the Hebrew faith proper, just like we're talking about when we talk about the Christian faith proper, we're talking about um, the Messiah coming for the salvation of, of us men. Um, so that's what I mean in terms of clarifying that. Obviously, there are going to be Hebrew people that are out to lunch of every time and period, just as there are Christian people who are out to lunch at every time and period, right? And we have a kind of parallel in the in the Pharisees um, and their misconstrual that yes, because they were looking for the Messiah again. When G- when Jesus is claimed to be the Messiah, their point isn't there's no such thing as a Messiah. Their point is it's not him, and he's hanging out with sinners, right? Yeah. Right. So, so that's their definition. Yeah. So they're still messianic. They're just viewing it as the Messiah is going to be holy like we're holy. And he's, and he's going to look down his nose at sinners the way we look down our nose at sinners. Um, so yeah. it's a certain brand of legalism. And be an earthly king as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably so. Uh, you know, it's somewhat subject, uh, up for grabs. You know, it's kind of a, a, it's, it's more parallel to the millennialistic view of like, it's going to be an earthly kingdom, but one that sort of transcends the bounds of normalcy and, um, yeah, sort of transfigures the, the earthly kingdom into a heavenly one. Um, but yes, they, so you have these aberrations and you have a little bit of a parallel that just as the Pharisees arose saying, no, no, it's not just God's grace to sinners. Jesus eating with sinners is wrong. Um, you've got a parallel of that in Christianity where it's, no, no, salvation isn't as easy as Jesus died for you. Salvation isn't as easy as Jesus sets his table in the midst of sinners and loves to eat with us because he is the forgiveness of sins. No, no, it's got to be more complicated than that. You've got to add in your righteousness. Um, and so there's the, that parallel, Phariseeism of the Old Testament age, Phariseeism of the New Testament age. Okay. Um, oh, yes. Did you have a... Um, I was just, to me, I mean, this is beautiful clarification. 
in a world that is so muddled by ethical dilemmas. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And by distilling things down into this formula when you're faced with an ethical dilemma, mm -hmm. which it it just gives you, I, I'm very interested in these these days because um, just looking at therapy, for many years we weren't allowed to touch ethical dilemmas. Don't lead your clients in a direction or way. And basically all therapy is a lot of ethical dilemmas, you know, in decision making and stuff. This just so clarifies it and gives you uh, peace. Not that you'll necessarily come to the decision right away, but you're on the right path to eventually figure out the right, yeah. the right formula or, or, or whatnot. Um, and we're just so full this year. I mean, in history now, even the Pharisees, I was thinking, well, they were, you know, that they presented, that was the way they solved their decision-making process. And they came in with good works and, and it was so misled. But this, you know, is just so clear. It's so yeah. clear. It gives you this, you know, which is God's word, you know, it gives you this pathway when you're struggling with something and wondering, what should I do? It leads you to put the focus in the right place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I copy your idea. It puts the emphasis on the right syllable. <laughs> I copy that because you said that you first. I, you. I copied it from somebody else. I know. I it was one of your who professors. Who probably copied it from somebody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so it, but it, it puts the emphasis on the right syllable. You know, it's right. it's so, I, I just love it, you know, because I've been thinking about relational ethics. Mm -hmm. And we are so situational, you know, well, where we allow so many things declare our ability to logically work through something mm -hmm. where this just lays it out. It's a great ruler. Oh, glad to hear that. And glad it's helpful in that respect. Yeah, no doubt about it. Please, Alice. Well, I was, I was thinking this is... As you just said, it's comforting to us. It's comforting because we know we accept we're not co-redemptors. Mm -hmm. And, but there's so, I read in the paper two days ago that most people in the United States declare that they have no faith, that there is, mm -hmm. when they said, what do you have? None. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of the torture that comes from, and I agree with you, the pharisaical beliefs of the church at large when they say, um, salvation through Christ is good, but you have to earn it. Mm -hmm. You have to be part of that redemptive process. Yeah. And so then people just move away because they know they can't. Yeah. It's self-defeating. Yeah. And um, it just seems to, it's like the devil's promise, you know, mm -hmm. just over and over and over again with different labels. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's where your point articulates for me, why it's so important that the pure gospel go out into the world. And that pure gospel means no conditions attached. So many people, when you say, well, this is what Christ has done for you, but what it means is you need to totally clean up your life, they go, well, I'm not ready for that. And so then they reject, they reject Christ and the free forgiveness of sins on account of they're not ready to make this huge life change. What's happening there is a confusion between these categories of justification and sanctification between gospel and, and law. And what, what we need to do is present the gospel as it is with no conditions and no strings attached and give people the time and the space for that, for that faith to take root and the Holy Spirit to dwell richly and the, the adjustments to, to life to take place after, you know. The fruit will come, exactly. So we we want to remove that barrier that people have in their mind, like, well, I would convert to Christianity, but I'm not ready to change all my friends, <laughs> kick my girlfriend out, everything. You know, it's like, okay, how about if the gospel comes to you and says, um, your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus, period. Christ came for sinners, period. Let that soak in. Believe that. That's the essence and heart of how it is for all of us. It's not how much you clean up your life that gets you into heaven or not. Okay. Now, now if, if that's good news, you're a Christian. Let's start there. And then let's talk about who Christ is, who the Father is, what goodness is, 
what he wills for us and why he wills it for us. And let's work out the other stuff then as, as time goes on. Which isn't that actually a fair reflection of all of us? I mean, I've been a Christian ostensibly my whole life and I'm still working it out. <laughs> you know, you're, all, you're always, whoa, the weeds have grown up a little bit. The grass is too tall. Got to get out there and mow it again. Got to get rid of those weeds. Oh, well, I was over here doing this. More grew up over here. Isn't that the, not the Christian life? Isn't that what St. Paul says? The good I want to do, I do not. The evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? And so, um, this is a, people have in their minds, by nature, this is what Luther called the opinio legis. Just naturally, people think, well, if I've got to come to God, that means I've got to do everything. And since I'm not ready to do everything, I'm not going to do anything, right? And so then, the gospel is so antithetical to that and really turns it upside down. It says, you don't want to do anything? Great, don't do anything. Christ has done it all for you. Believe. Well, what do I have to change? What do I have to do? How about nothing? How about just believe that your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus? Start there. Drink that in. Take that in. And I bet you, in a certain period of time, you'll want to start making changes. But that's not necessary for salvation. This is he who, yeah, this is he who justifies the ungodly, right? Not the, not those that clean themselves up but the ungodly. And it just so happens that once you receive that forgiveness and receive the Holy Spirit, what naturally happens to you? I mean, this is kind of all the secret. Your your heart starts to change. You start to enjoy things that you didn't enjoy before. You start to love God where you didn't love him before. You start to want to sacrifice for your neighbor when you didn't want to sacrifice before. You start to kind of loathe yourself and self-interest. All of this happens naturally as a free gift of the Holy Spirit. But we can't let that that fact be a hindrance to people in our proclamation of the gospel. So the gospel just goes full out, full force, no conditions. God in Christ Jesus has reconciled you to himself. He has cleansed you by his blood. And that's actually true whether you believe it or not. Okay. Now, if you insist upon spending eternity, the rest of your life here on earth and the rest of your existence in eternity apart from him, he'll let you have that. But why on earth would you want that? He's life and light and the forgiveness of sins. He's self-sacrificial love. He's purity and goodness incarnate and given to us. Why wouldn't you want that? And so we invite people in in that respect. Yeah. Please. So I've heard the term, I mean, I've heard people say, okay, once saved, always saved. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Like, so there's nothing that could ever take our salvation mm. away. No, we don't find, we don't find that a faithful articulation. Um, it's, it's kind of a one-sided conclusion you might get to if you're just kind of looking at one side of the coin here. Um, why we why we don't say that is because Jesus, in his parable in Luke's gospel of the, uh, the sower with the seed, he says that those who spring up a little bit and, and then they're, they die in, in the heat of the, these be, these believed for a little while and fell away. So Jesus himself teaches against once saved, always saved. So how could I teach? Let's <laughs> say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, right. So we can fall away from the faith. All right, so then now we're going to speak to it in a different way. We're going to speak to a Christian who believes in God but is tempted by the devil, the world, and his sinful flesh to sort of like, well, let's let God just be over there. Let's go about my life. You know, well, what's going to happen is you're going to end up falling away. And so then those scriptures are a warning to Christians established in the faith. Don't fall away. You can fall away. Um, repent, draw near, etc., etc. Um, so what we need to understand there is that the scriptures speak in different ways to different people in different conditions. Make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that clarification. Really appreciate it. Okay, are we all right? Oh, we're, I see we're over, well, we're, we've got one minute left. Do you want to stick one more question in? Or do you want to wait till after the bell? <laughs> okay, we'll get, we'll catch it after the bell. So, all right. All right. For the sake of it then, um, we'll pick back up on this topic. Um, I think it's in about four weeks' time. It's in January. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a break here just due to uh, Christmas and taking a little reprieve. And we'll get back into this text and, and back into exploring you know, the foundations of our Christian faith. The Lord be with you.